Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, I have a conversation with John Chushor, and we talk about John's book, uh, Deceit on the Road to War, and he lays out an interesting framework for when and why presidents deceive and mislead the public to go to war. And we talk about three specific cases, one from World War II, one from Vietnam, and one from the Iraq War. We then talk a little bit about what the use of deceit by presidents uh, and John's framework can tell us about the current administration, which uh, seems to have some challenges with the truth. And so we'll talk a little bit about that and why that might be and how that does or does not fit in with John's framework for understanding how previous administrations use deceit to mislead their populations. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's quite interesting and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for following along. Welcome back for another episode of Public Problems. I'm Justin Bullock, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm with John Schusler. John is an associate professor in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service here at Texas A&M University. Uh, he has published in International Security and Perspectives on Politics and is the author of a book that we'll spend a little bit of time going over today, um, Deceit on the Road to War, uh, Presidents, Politics, and American Democracy, and that's uh, Cornell University Press from 2015. Um, today we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, going over the framework of John's book and why presidents in particular use deceit or lies, as we might call some of them, or bordering on lies on the road to war and why they do that in a strategic way sometimes and um, sometimes in ways in which maybe that isn't strategic. Um, John has also uh, published a new piece at the International Security Studies Forum. You may remember um, this is also the place where Greg Gauls had published his piece that we were uh, that we were referencing. And so um, the, the piece is titled, Why Does Donald Trump Have So Much Trouble With the Truth? Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that once we lay out the framework. It's sort of a a, known, a noted thing in our discourse these days um, with the increase of, of just sort of blatant lies at the top of the political spectrum. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the evidence John puts forward in his H. Diplo article for that. But before we foray into current events, I do want to talk about your book, John, um, the framework you use um, and the cases you discuss. I believe the book leaves a reader with uh, three different questions that you point to in the conclusion of your book, and then hopefully we'll um, move to a discussion about those after we lay out your case, and then talk about how those questions um, inform current events today. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, all right, let's just dive right in. Thanks again, John. Thank you. And so let's start with the book. Uh, John has a book called Deceit on the Road to War, which is available to be purchased um, if you are uh, jumping at the bits to get to it. Um, and in that, you lay out a concept called democratic deception. And so I thought we might just start with the basic premise of what is democratic deception and what's the framework for evaluating these cases of why presidents use deception or lies to mislead the public for some aim. So tell us a little bit about de democratic deception and then how you use that as a framework for some of your cases like shifting the blame or overselling a war and just give us the basic parameters. Sure. Um, 
So it sounds like it makes sense to start with a definition, just so we know what we're talking about. Um, what do I mean by deception? Um, so in the book, uh, I try to be fairly specific. And what I'm trying to look at are cases where leaders deliberately mislead the domestic audience about um, their thinking or their decision making, specifically um, about kind of the basic decision of, of whether to go to war and then and then their the rationale for doing so. Um, just a few things to note about this. Um, first, and I think you, you mentioned lying. Um, this is an important point. Uh, we tend to elect in our country um, fairly savvy people who understand that um, there are many ways you can shade the truth, but only but only one way that can kind of get you in direct trouble, which is telling blatant, um, easily refuted lies. Now, we're going to return to uh, the current occupant of the White House later, but for the most part, in the cases I looked at, um, blatant lying was not what kind of is surfacing in these cases. It, so is it more kind of uh, like like what we see now, right? Uh, is sort of couching information in a way that's deliberately misleading or not in the right context or focusing on the wrong numbers? Is that kind of... What do some of these strategies yeah, look like, I guess? Sure. So um, I kind of talk about a few uh, shades of this. And really the contrast we're trying to draw here is with truth-telling. So imagine a world in which leaders were totally candid about their decision-making and why they were doing things. That's a world in which truth-telling prevails. Now, we know that in politics, that's not the world we operate in, um, but we do expect at least some fealty to truth-telling. Um, in the cases I look at, though, you see fairly big departures from truth-telling using those subtle forms of deception. And one I talk about really is simply concealment. So, um, you know, omissions, leaving out key facts or not making key arguments at, at critical junctures when decisions are being made, concealing relevant considerations from the public. And the other is um, kind of spin or framing where you kind of take facts or Know, considerations that are true in some sense, but put package them in a way that is misleading. And I, I guess the point I would just make overall is that uh, leaders can do a fair amount of deceiving or misleading without telling a lot of blatant lies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's important because sometimes we fixate on lying as kind of the, the, the thing of interest. And I would say that Again, leaders are savvier than that. It, it's very dangerous to tell a blatant lie, or it used to be. Yeah, and, and that makes me think, uh, you mentioned in your H. Dippo article, the uh, PolitiFact. PolitiFact tries to gradiate between these things as well, right? When talking about different types of misinformation across particularly politicians, it's, I forget the categories, but one's like pants on fire, right. complete lie, not even close to the truth. But there's several steps in between that are, okay, this is misleading but technically true and so and when you're talking about deception you're seeing more of not pants on fire like we see it right. well, at least not historically pants on fire just blatant lies but more kind of focusing on um or either concealing things that would be relevant to whether or not for example to go to war right. or overselling um something like access to weapons of mass destruction which we'll exactly. get to in one of your cases as 
okay, there was a concern about whether or not Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but overselling the, you know, the famous Colin Powell speech at the UN, overselling the quality of evidence or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so what you're looking for is a pattern of disconnect between kind of private thinking on the part of leaders and then their public presentation of that thinking. And that disconnect can get fairly big without a lot of blatant lies. So if you've decided at one point we're probably going to have to go to war and you pretend you haven't publicly, or if you kind of know privately that the facts are a bit ambiguous about the severity of the threat, but publicly you say, man, this threat is one of the worst we've ever faced. That That's what I'm talking, and that's every bit as deceptive or deceiving um, as telling a blatant lie, but it has the benefit of not, you know, critics can't pounce on any particular claim and say, you're lying. So, um, before we jump into <clears throat> cases, because I think the cases do a really nice job of illustrating this, and you compile some nice evidence, what, what was it that got you interested in essentially presidents deceiving people to go to war. I mean, was it coming of age during the Iraq war and it just being so sort of blatant in retrospect, or maybe even it was, I was quite young. Um, as you know, I would think I was, uh, when the twin towers went down, I was 13 living in rural Northwest Georgia and didn't even know what the twin towers were. Yeah. And so I kind of missed some of that, but I think you have a, a couple of years on me. And so was it, <clears throat> was it sort of the experience of going through politically the Iraq war that triggered the idea for this book or what got you interested in these issues? Well, yeah, it's, that's a great question. As often happens with these things, you know, it's the intersection of the personal and the academic. So on the personal front, my formative years in graduate school were from 2000 to 2006 or seven. So they match up almost perfectly with 9-11 and then the response. And, you know, I was at the University of Chicago at the time which is home to um, a few realist scholars, John Mearsheimer in particular, who became kind of vocal public critics of the Iraq war. And a, and a key element of that criticism was that the rationale for war was weak and was built on misleading claims. Um, but to their credit, they also invited a number of pro-war types, even before the war had officially started, to come make the case. So, you know, you could, I'm kind of sitting there taking in you know, both sides of this debate. Um, and, and it was very formative as an experience. Now, on the academic side, you know, kind of the one of the strongest strands in the IR literature, the international relations literature, which is my where my training is at, is this basic argument that liberal democracies are different from other kinds of states. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that leaders in liberal democracies have to get the public on board for big decisions like going to war. And they do so through persuasion, through making arguments mm -hmm. that kind of persuade enough people that, yes, the benefits outweigh the costs. And we're told that these arguments, you know, have to be fairly on the level because in liberal democracies, you have institutions like uh, um, the media and uh, the legislature um, civil society, all these mechanisms to kind of keep leaders honest, because if they tell, if they say false things, they can kind of be challenged and held to account for that. Um, and so the upshot of all this is that, that democracies are supposed to simply be better at foreign policy than non-democracies. They, they, when they get into crises, they, they get 
get good results out of them. They win a lot of their most of their wars. They remain at peace with the states they should remain at peace at and only get in fights when it's necessary. So um, now think about this argument and then place <laughs> yourself in a graduate environment where um, yeah. you're wondering, well, then how can Iraq happen, right? Uh, the reaction to 9-11 didn't look like this to me. Mm -hmm. And so as often happens, you this contrast is, you know, leads to a project. And um, I should say that I mentioned John Mearsheimer. He was my graduate school advisor and mentor. Um, we started talking about this and he actually beat me to the punch of it and wrote a book on lying in international <laughs> politics. It was kind of. Uh, which was quite good. But, uh, but I, you know, <clears throat> I guess in a way, you know, this is, these were ideas that were percolating in this place at that time and that kind of led to this book. So you hit two terms. I just want to make sure listeners understand okay. and because I think they might have connotations. And then <clears throat> I do want to jump on into the, to the evidence you lay out. So you use the term realist, which I think is a pretty common camp for thinking about the way in which countries interact with international politics. So I want you to tell me just a, a brief summary of what you mean by realist as opposed to some other terms people might have, might hear. And then what you mean, just because, and I, hate that we even have to do this, but uh, I, I want you to say what you mean by a liberal democracy and sort of okay. the, the intellectual uh, uh, definition of that. Not that we're talking about liberal versus conservative, but what we mean when we say a liberal democracy, because I'm sort of of the opinion that liberal democracies are very much under attack. That's why we're doing this. We're trying to give more evidence to your argument, which is liberal democracy should be better at uh, keeping their leaders in check and not recklessly going to war, we would hope. Yeah. Um, and part of that's an education problem, which is the whole point of this enterprise. But yeah, so tell me just a tad about what you mean when you say realist, and then okay. a tad about what you mean by liberal democracy. Sure. Um, so, at least for me, or from my perspective, the central ongoing debate in my field of international relations is between realism and liberalism. So, I encapsulated an important strand of the liberal um, tradition when I made this argument about liberal democracies being different from other kinds of states. There are other strands to the liberal tradition, but but that's an important one. So realism, um, I'd say, is a descriptive matter. Um, realism basically says, you know, at the end of the day, states or countries are really not that different from each other or they shouldn't be. Um, it really is about things like power and threat, where um, if a state is powerful, it tends to act a certain way relative to less powerful states, usually more aggressively. Um, if it's threatened, it tends to act more aggressively. And really, things like whether a state is a liberal democracy or not are less important. That there are these kind of... Um, external constraints that overwhelm the internal makeup. Of sort of like rules of the game. Like we just know that entities that are governed behave in some basic ways and the, they seek power and those that have power kind of seek to keep it. And if they're threatened, they uh, respond kind of with big ego and bravado. Yeah. It's basically all about the structure of the situation you're placed in. Okay. A simple analogy is the schoolyard, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, very gentle kids, if placed in the Hobbesian world of the schoolyard without adult supervision, sometimes can resort to very rough behavior. If back to, in, 
if backed into a quarter or if tempted by their, you know, physical strength. And it's basically, it's really less about the internal disposition or character of these kids. It's about the environment they're in. There's no adult supervision. No one's enforcing the rules. So sometimes <laughs> you have to get rough, right, to kind of protect yourself or to get your way. That sounds like a good way of describing the international scene at the moment. There, well, there are yeah, no adults I mean, and no rules. It's uh, compelling to me as you make it. Yeah, and you know this. So <clears throat> I mean that. Ba- so that basic argument kind of is a, is a very realist argument that the, the salient fact about international politics is there's no kind of nine one one to call if you're a country or a state. You have to kind of fend for yourself. Um, so that's that's a lot of what realism's about. Um, but you know, we'll get to some of the cases later. The the key thing to note about realism, though, is that in practice, among those in the United States who kind of affix this label to themselves, their basic position tends to be that you know what the United States is about as powerful and 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 as and as and, and as unthreatened as, as you can get in terms of rel history. And so we should be fairly restrained in our foreign policy because really there's no reason to go around picking new fights. Um, We're kind of at the top of the heap. We don't really have any competitors. And so there's no external reason for us to kind of be getting in a lot of wars. Um, Hence, you need an explanation for why things like Iraq happened and Vietnam earlier. and then just to circle back to liberal democracy also, yeah. and and so I assume when you mean that, you mean sort of classic liberalism, which is basic human rights, democracy, uh, people have a voice in their government, and that's what you mean when you use the term liberal democracy. Yes. I mean, it's essentially, it's a, it's a term we use to describe a, a political order that is really designed to maximize um, liberty, hence liberalism. Now, there are different ways of understanding what liberty is all about. Certainly. But at a basic level, it's about, you know, protecting, creating space for individuals to kind of pursue the good life. And at the very, you know, what you need then is a system that kind of, um, you know, protects people from each other at some level, but also protects them from an overweening government. But, um, you know, so this is why you have checks and balances and elections and all these things, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, all these things that that create space for us to kind of live our lives free from external interference. Um, but beyond that, at least today, I think there's also the connotation that in a liberal democracy, you know, the system is designed to advance, you know, human flourishing. So mm-hmm. it's not just the, the right to kind of not be interfered with. It's also why, you know, this is why, you know, you have welfare states and, and support for education. It's kind of, you know, if, if freedoms <clears throat> mean something, people need to have the resources to actually pursue the good life. So, which it sort of differentiates. Uh, so when you were saying that, it made me think of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, like well, a there, term where and yeah, there is this notion of sort of freedom of liberty or freedom and liberty of having freedom from things, freedom from intervention, uh, but also freedom to access things like access to education and yes. good health care and. And those types of things. So it isn't always just freedom from things. It's freedom to have a good life. As well, this is the it. big tension among liberal thinkers. There are some that focus on negative liberty, 
which is freedom from constraint. And then there are positive liberals who focus on the freedom to achieve certain goals in life. And really, in today's political system, you know, the libertarian types are negative liberals and about everyone else are positive liberals, including all Democrats and many Republicans. So. And, and just on this, this is interesting. I know we're getting a little distracted okay. from our notes, it's but what, what are the other main forms of government that we see that, so when someone hears liberal democracy, they know what to compare it to. I'm thinking theocracy, constitutional monarchy. What are the sort of popular ones that we're seeing that nation states have right now? That's a good question. I mean, in, in my world, scholarly world of international relations, we do a lot of just lumping democracies versus non-democracies, but everybody understands those are verily fairly crude categories. So in the democracy <clears throat> category, if you have liberal democracies, you can have illiberal democracies. Mm -hmm. um, these are states where the you could call it there's a tyranny of the majority, mm -hmm. that there are elections, um, but the, the, the government kind of tramples on the rights of minorities and individuals. And, you know, this is a concern and, you know, that this is the going concern in, you know, with the populist surge in here and in Europe and elsewhere with, you know, what's going on in Poland and, you know, Hungary and Austria, Turkey, is, Austria, mm -hmm. that, that these are increasingly a liberal democracies where individual minority rights are not protected. Uh, on the non-democratic side, um, you know, you can have uh, party-led states like Communist China uh, or the People's Republic of China. You can have strongmen-ruled states like Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Um, kind of like North Korea as well. North, with that. North Korea is a personalist dynasty. And so uh, in terms of how scholars think about it, it often comes down to is the state ruled by like one person or a party or a junta, you know, a, a, or and what kind of what kind of rulership? Is it a military dictatorship? Is it a non-military dictatorship? So it's really about who has the power and how they're allowed to use it. I mean, and who they're accountable and who they're accountable to. If anybody. To. Um, this is why, for example, many scholars are now today arguing that there are more similarities between, like, let's say, a People's Republic of China and many democracies than between both of them and, like, North Korea. Because in China, at least there's a party. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I'm not a China expert, but it, yep. historically there's been a party that keeps the top. It's like a party apparatus. Yeah. For results. So. Where that's less so in sort of the strongman countries in general. Right. Okay, so let's bring it back to the discussion of your book and some of the evidence here. Um, so you lay out what you mean by democratic deception and this idea that it's not necessarily blatant lying, but it is leaders sort of trying in, in liberal democracies like the U.S. trying to use deception or misinformation or uh, framing to shift public opinion in a certain way. And in the cases you look at are on the road to war uh, in particular. And I like <clears throat> the first one is shifting the blame to the axis as your first kind of empirical or evidence-based chapter. Um, and I, I, I didn't get to read the chance, the chance to read all of them. So I'm going to let you tell me about it, but I know sort of popularly you hear people talk about FDR doing this and, and the idea was that he knew, you know, the conspiracy theories that I've heard are that he knew that Pearl Harbor was going to happen. So he let it happen so he could shift the blame to yeah. 
um, to Japan and the Axis powers. And so, um, one, I'm just curious, is there anything to that? And what do you mean here when you say shifting to the blame to the Axis? Because it fits in with the idea right. of FDR using tools to blame someone else as an excuse to get involved in uh, World War II. So I should say the argument I make in the chapter, it's controversial, it, as I'll lay out. It's called kind of the backdoor to war argument, but it's not the Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor. conspiracy <laughs> theory. So the, the conspiracy theory is that the FDR knew that the Japanese would attack at Pearl Harbor specifically and did nothing to prevent it because he knew it would bring us into the war that he wanted for various nefarious reasons. Um the basic argument I make in the chapter is that FDR um, kind of comes around to the conclusion, I would say, sometime in 1941, probably by the summer, that the U.S. simply has to get into the war if Nazi Germany is going to be stopped from overrunning Europe. And we can't have that because... Um, if Nazi Germany overruns Europe, and especially if it does so in partnership with Japan, who then takes over Asia, this is the one threat that can kind of um, get to us in the Western Hemisphere. You know, yeah. we'll be Close isolated. Enough. Yeah. Um, so the problem is that uh, if you look at the key domestic audiences, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for this idea of getting into the war against the Nazis. Um, it hasn't been that long since the Great War. That's certainly part of the backdrop that, that many people regretted American participation in World War One and felt that we had been misled into that war by munitions makers and an overweening uh, President Wilson. And um, and so, for example, in Congress in the 30s, they passed these neutrality acts, which are basically designed to kind of minimize any kinds of entanglements that might get the U.S. into the war in Europe in terms of sa sales of arms or traveling on shipping, you know, that might go to war zones and things like that. And then you have um, a fairly influential anti-interventionist movement that sprouts up around the 1940 election um, and is quite influential. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people are affiliated with this movement, and they have um, kind of prominent spokespeople, Charles Lindbergh being one of the most famous large rallies, making the argument that the U.S. doesn't need to enter the war, and it will, and if it does, it will kind of be bad for us, for our democracy. Um, and so, you know, Roosevelt has a lot to contend with. Most important at the mass public level, you have this kind of tension. Um, people, as often happens, want to have their cake and eat it too. So people, most people don't like the Nazis. They don't want to see them win the war. And they, they do want to support the allies, but only up to a point, mm -hmm. short of getting into the actual war. And so you see kind of more and more openness at the mass public level to kind of taking some risks to keep the allies in the fight, but it never reaches a point where you get real support for getting into the war. So if you're FDR, what do you do about this? Um, my argument is that um, his basic approach from the summer of 1941 on was to... Um, kind of coax us into situations <laughs> that might lead to a conflict. Um, because I think he understood that, you know, he himself using the bully pulpit could only have so much impact. 
He was a fairly divisive figure by this point, um, and rhetoric could only do so much. It, it, there had to be kind of facts on the ground that said, yes, this war needs to happen. And so, for example, um, if you look at the Battle of the Atlantic um, in the summer of 1941, the U.S. is getting increasingly involved. And there's a fair amount of recognition that there is going to be shooting between American and German warships. And FDR is does not shy away from this. Um, now, you could argue that he doesn't kind of launch us into it with full steam, but uh, but he's do, he's he's increasingly aggressive about intervening in the Atlantic. It's almost like he's trying to create situations where conflict could happen, and then yes. if the conflict does happen, then maybe there's an excuse to go to war. Right, and this is the difficult thing about FDR. He he was a bit of a well, he was kind of a sociopath, and so he was capable of saying you know, one thing to one audience and the opposite to another audience in, all in the same day. And it's very hard to pin down what his true feelings were. But for example, he says to Churchill at the famous Atlantic Conference in August 1941, he says to him explicitly, my goal here is to create an incident that will kind of pull us into the war. You just need to be patient. Some historians discount that as FDR being FDR. But he said this to enough folks, including his advisors, that you begin to feel that maybe he's not just making this up. Um, <laughs> Almost like you meant what he said. <laughs> yes. And there are incidents. The problem for FDR is the public doesn't respond to them as strongly as he'd like. You know, their American ships are sunk in the Atlantic and lives are lost. And if anything, the public and Congress grow even a little more gun shy about taking the final step. Uh, this is kind of where the Pacific comes in. And I, I think the key point to make here is the larger strategy on paper was to kind of contain the Japanese and not get into a fight with them because the Nazis are the real threat. So the puzzle is why the U.S. really ratchets up the pressure in a big way in the fall of 1941 when it had specifically not done that prior to that point to avoid a fight. And the big thing is the oil embargo, mm -hmm. which kind of is slapped on when Japan kind of continues to move into Southeast Asia. You know, FDR is on the record several times saying we haven't done this oil embargo thus far because it would lead to a fight in the Pacific between us and the Japanese. Um, so I, I think the point is there's awareness within the government that an oil embargo will lead to a fight with the Japanese there's some uncertainty about where that will happen. A lot, of, a lot of speculation as well. You know, it will happen when the Japanese move into the Dutch East Indies and we'll get a fight over some British or Dutch colony. The focus isn't on Pearl Harbor. But the point is, FDR is not doing much to kind of avoid a fight at this point. And in fact, we kind of escalate our terms for, for a settlement with them from, all right, stop in place containment to, all right, now we're asking you to actually withdraw from your your gains, the big one being China, which was a total non-starter. So the puzzle is, why are we ratcheting things up at the Pacific at a time when we're supposed to be avoiding a fight? And scholars have said it's a matter of bureaucratic capture, like mid-level bureaucrats take over the process and subvert FDR's will, or ideology kind of is blinding folks. But 
I see more of a potential strategy that FDR is simply not going to make much of an effort anymore to avoid getting into the war. So that sort of fits in a little bit. I mean, interestingly enough, it sort of fits in with this idea that, I mean, not not quite to the extreme that Roosevelt knew what was going to, that there was going to be attack in Pearl Harbor, but at least was sympathetic towards the idea of some type of conflict pulling us into World War II, right? I mean, that's the basic argument of the chapter, that FDR, I think, he saw it more as an inevitability. The U.S. simply had will, would and had to get into the war at some point to stop the Nazis. And um, I guess in his mind, here's the key part, he could not have, he could not have an open debate about it because the debate would not go well. He couldn't go to Congress or the public and say, we need to get into the war. And he tells this to the British ambassador. If I did this, 70% of the public in Congress would, would vote against me. Um, What's he saying yeah. publicly at this time? So to, to get at the deception piece of this, right. I suppose. And um, so he seems to be leaving a space for conflict to occur so that the public will get behind participation in World War II. But while this is going on, is he still what is he saying publicly? He he his rhetoric about the Nazis is getting increasingly strident and he's not he 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 for example, you know, in the fall of 1941 after a famous naval incident, the Greer incident, he he's rather, you know, candid. He says, "Look, um you can't wait for a rattlesnake to strike before you whack it. And so basically what he's saying is, from now on, we're just going to shoot at German ships and planes we see in the Atlantic. But what he, but what he's doing is kind of couching all this in terms of our larger strategy is to kind of keep the allies in the war, not for us to get directly into it. So he, he never takes the final step of just posing directly to the public, this is what we need to do. And it drives his hawkish advisors crazy. They they kind of Henry Stimson as Secretary of War is just beside himself that the president's being so devious. Um, you know, he wants him to lead and just have an honest conversation and, and debate about conversation. And so the deceit really here then is his attempt, as you label the chapter, but is to shift the blame to the axis right. and the shifting the blame strategy is trying to get them to engage in conflict and to such a degree that it will will uh, garner public support by the by the Americans to support FDR going to war. Yeah, and I should note on this, one historian who who has reviewed my book asked, are, is Schuessler suggesting that the U.S. is to blame <laughs> for the war and hence needs to shift it? No, um, you know, it, 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 the Axis is driving all this by kind of um, through their expansion but the point here is that the U.S. does have a choice in whether to respond. Sure. Um, and what FDR is doing is concealing the choice in the matter by shifting all of the blame onto the axis, even if maybe how about 20% yeah. you know, or something should have been on us, if that makes sense. No, that, that, I follow that. So let's, let's, I think I have a good understanding of that. Let's shift okay. to shifting blame to the communists. So yes. we're going from the axis to a new scary force, which is the communists. And um, what does LBJ do with respect to the Vietnam War to shift the blame to the communists? Right. So, well, first, let me put in a plug for the PBS series on the Vietnam War, which 
which was just released not long ago, right? Yeah, it's 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 now all aired on PBS, but all the episodes are available online, and it's eighteen hours of, of time out of your life. But uh, that's even going to be longer than this interview. <laughs> yes, it's well worth it. So anyway, uh, the way I describe this case is kind of a creeping form of what you get in the World War II case. So um, FDR faces somewhat of the same predict, or LBJ faces somewhat of a the same predicament as FDR, but everything is less intense, and hence the deceptions are a little less pointed. Um, but basically, the argument is that LBJ um, understands, again, probably before many others in the domestic audience, that the U.S. will have to kind of take over the war in Vietnam to prevent South Vietnam from falling to the communists. Um, which he thinks the U.S. needs to do for kind of credibility or domino theory type of reasons. Um, but he also understands that um, while at the domestic level there's going to be some openness to this, there's not going to be a lot of enthusiasm, especially if you start to highlight how costly and long this war could be. And so basically what he does is he... Um, quote, escalates the war by stealth. So um, he ratchets up American involvement um, in 1964 and especially in 1965, um, first uh, in the air war, Rolling Thunder in North Vietnam, and then in the ground war. Um, and so by July 1965, he's basically committed the U.S. to a relatively open-ended war in South Vietnam against the Viet Cong and and the North Vietnamese army that, that they're fighting there. And so, um, but he really isn't very open about this um, with the public. So, um, you know, if, if you watch the PBS series, the relevant episode, there's a famous press conference he gives in July, 1965, after he's committed to this open-ended war in private, where he basically tells the press that, well, we haven't, there's no policy change here. It's just like a, a change in tactics, which is very misleading. I mean, we've gone from a situation where the U.S. has largely advised and supported the South Vietnamese in their fight against the communists to more or less taking over the war. And he simply would not admit that. Um, I can imagine it driving like protesters in that time period just mad. <laughs> yes, and, you know, and so you do, and you do actually that the anti-war movement does start to kick off in the spring of 1965. It's pretty small at this point, but um, even more striking, there's a lot of skepticism at the elite level about this in the Senate, in his own government, um, but but people are not willing to kind of step up and publicly say this is a bad idea. Um, which kind of gets to one point that comes up at the end of the book. So what FDR is kind of taking advantage of is a relatively permissive domestic environment where there's a lot of ambivalence domestically. So he takes advantage of that to kind of escalate the war under the radar. Um, but it comes back to bite him because he, by not openly kind of mobilizing for war, it makes it easier for everybody to turn on him when things go south later, which they do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is not as an, an, as intense a case as, as World War II 
because, you know, in the World War II case, you're kind of talking about all in or all out. And if you go all in, you're mobilizing mass yeah. armies and changing the nature of American society. FDR is more dealing with, um, you know, a tense domestic political environment, but not one where people are openly mobilized against him in large numbers. And so he's able to kind of do this a bit more on the sly. And he does shift blame like FDR does, though. You know, the Tonkin Golf incident is obviously a prominent example. And then there's another one called the Plyku incident later that, that we could talk about where, you know, he, he LBJ keeps pointing to these communist provocations to justify the next step up the escalation ladder. But really, um, these, <clears throat> as, as, as I think McGeorge Bundy, his national security advisor, said about the later Plyku incident, these incidents are like streetcars. You just wait for one to come along in order to justify Pick up one. The next step up the ladder. Yeah, it's really um, it says, and we'll get here, but that's I think interesting parallels the the shifting the blame to the axis and shifting the blame to the communists <clears throat> does have some interesting connotations. I think for where we're going, which is following nine eleven, and then even into the current presidency and and throughout the Obama presidency, um, is this idea of, of blaming terrorists for all kinds of problems as almost I mean. They are causing problems, but almost as boogeymen sometimes when yeah. there are maybe more straightforward explanations for things going on or sacrifices are being asked to made with respect to liberty for, you know, in the past it was communist or, um, or immigrants, which is something that's coming up again, right? But it's, uh, it seems to me that terrorists are sort of used that way, uh, as a blaming tool, at least across the last three presidencies. Yeah, I mean, it, and in, I'd say in all these cases, it's hard to know where to draw the line between sincere and insincere use of these terms arguments, yeah. because like in the World War II case, FDR really did fear the Nazis and the Axis. Um, he fudged the details about how tactically responsible they were for bringing on a fight between them and us, but... Likewise with LBJ, he really did think communism was threatening and he felt it was important not to lose South Vietnam, which doesn't nullify the fact that he misrepresented <laughs> sure. how responsible the Viet Cong per se were for bringing us into the war because, you know, it wasn't their attack on an airbase or something that kind of led us to start Operation Rolling Thunder, the big air campaign against North Vietnam. We had been talking about doing this for months. So at a macro level, in a lot of these cases, there is a sincere fear of the, the axis or communism or terrorism. What's striking is how that then justifies a lot of misrepresentation about the actual details of this threat. Mm -hmm. um, and often, yeah. So, well, just on that, I mean, yeah. I think it's a good way to shift to overselling the, the Iraq war. I mean, it's not specifically about, uh, well, I mean, I'll let you say whether it's specifically about terrorism or what the case is, sure. but um, so this is a, a famous case, at least as my understanding is. It's more recent, so people may be more familiar with it, but far enough removed where I think in general people would agree with the conclusion here that the Iraq war was oversold. And this is taught in classes. It's The case for this is pretty it's pretty clear, I think. But tell us a little bit about the way in which you analyze overselling the Iraq War. Yeah, this case 
ended up being harder for me than I initially thought. Um, because you're right, there is a lot of agreement that the war was, quote, oversold in the sense that the Bush administration made arguments that simply went beyond what the facts would support, especially about a so-called alliance between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. They, they were not operationally linked in any meaningful way. And the intelligence community was very comfortable telling the Bush administration <laughs> that, that, that they were not. Um, but on the WMD issue as well, you know, the administration was really stretching things by saying that Iraq was, quote, close to getting a nuclear weapon or that if it did get one, it would use it in any, any kind of aggressive way. Um, the intelligence was fragmentary and ambiguous on this score. Um, now, the intelligence starts to get more alarmist as you get closer to war, but um, another scholar, Joshua Rovner, has argued convincingly that that's the intelligence community responding to the political signals yeah. in the environment. But, but really, there's a disconnect here where everything the administration is saying is just stronger or more alarmist than what the facts should allow. What was difficult about this case was with this overselling is actually a fair amount of brazen candor about the fact that ultimately we will take out Saddam Hussein. So the big contrast with the other two cases we've discussed is Bush is not really trying to avoid a public debate on this. He's in some ways welcoming it because he knows it's going to be one-sided. There, he, I think he operates in the most permissive domestic environment of the three. Some of this has to do with 9-11 and the way that many people after 9-11 were very open to kind of a broad, quote, war on terror that encompassed more than just al-Qaeda. Part of it has to do with the Democratic Party not wanting to appear weak in the wake of 9-11, and having its own beef with Saddam Hussein for some time. Um, there's a lot of awareness among top Democrats, including some who run for president later, that, um, that the case is weak on the facts, but they simply choose not to call out the Bush administration for this, which kind of gets to the last point, which is, unlike the other two cases, almost everyone expects this war to be easy. Um, they think, well, we'll take Saddam out, hand it over to the Iraqis in a few months and be, be gone and on to the next adversary in the war on terror. And so if, even if you're a critic, a prominent Democrat, a journalist, your incentives to kind of make a big deal out of it before the fact are reduced because, well, if it's going to be an easy win, I don't, be, I don't want to be the one caught on the wrong side of history. So it's a weird case. You, get, you do get deception in the form of overselling. But you also get a fair amount of candor about the fact that there's little Saddam Hussein can do to ultimately avoid getting taken out. So um, it's trying to hype up the the reasoning to go to war with the idea that the general public and the president and the administration assumes that it's going to be a short, easy win. Or at least the sale is that it's going to be a short, easy yeah, win. Yeah, the best way I can put it is... Many people were ready to say yes to the Iraq war, but they just needed just enough detail to be convinced that this was a real threat, that, it, that this wasn't some medium term or distant threat that we could get around to later. This was something that had to be dealt with now. And so in a weird way, I do think that the Bush administration was 
quote, honest in its basic argument that we think Saddam is a threat and can't be left in power given what happened on 9-11. I don't think they're misrepresenting that. <clears throat> but they, but because they need to make this grave and gathering threat kind of argument, they, they latch on to all these intelligence nuggets that are, that are, they fudge the details. You know, some of this stuff having to do with, you know, Mohammed Atta, the lead 9-11 hijacker meeting with the Iraqis in Prague and, you know, the Iraqis trying to get uranium from Niger. This stuff is just, it's, it's based on weak intelligence and it's, it's, it's overselling. And yet they do it because they, you can't just, they feel like they can't just go to the public and say, look, we don't have any new evidence that Iraq is an urgent threat after 9-11. We just feel we can't afford to tolerate Saddam anymore and we're going to take him out. That That's just too, just a little too contentious, even yeah. if people are fairly close to buying that. It's really interesting that, you know, I, again, as I mentioned, I was pretty young as it was going on and not super politically aware at the time. <clears throat> and uh, I do just remember a sense of, I mean, if you kind of read stuff from that time period, there was this sense of, well, yeah, we're going to war. I mean, that's just something we're going to do. Yeah. And it was almost like it was just rubber rubber stamped or, or uh, cherry picked some pieces of information because we were already on that path and they needed some justification that wasn't, okay, we're just, we're done with Saddam Hussein. It was like they needed some kind of linchpin or some pieces of things to latch on to so that it seemed like, you know, they were doing it, you know, to to code or. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, it should be a controversial matter in a democracy to launch an unprovoked war, which is really what this was in a technical sense. Saddam had not been involved in 9-11, despite the fact that many people believed otherwise. And really, since the Gulf War, he had been largely neutered, um, you know, not emboldened. And so you're kind of making the argument that, well, we've had 9-11, and that's changed our thinking about Iraq, so Saddam needs to go. But there's no... Good. immediate pressing reason to do so. And frankly, that's that's not what democracies normally do. Um, so the Bush administration understood that it had to create a sense of urgency that, and that's where they get into some trouble with, with the truth. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think even they, if you read, for example, the memoir by Doug Fife, who was the uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, this is the number two in the Pentagon, he kind of says, you know, we had good reasons for taking out Saddam. I don't know why we kind of made these crazy arguments about WMD because we could have. There were good been, reasons, yeah. We could just know, been honest about them, right? But I would argue <clears throat> that, you know, the political types in the administration understood why you had to focus on WMD details because you needed a more pressing argument to go to war to kind of convince the general public this was a good idea. And or, then, yeah, and, and, you know, I think the thing that troubles me, though many things should trouble us, but, you know, the war happens and it doesn't go well in the post-war period, and you have all these official investigations which, which then blame the intelligence community, which is very disingenuous because intelligence did not lead to the decision for war. They decided on war and then they took a close look at the intelligence to see where the evidence lay. Yeah. And so this is just completely backwards to kind of say, well, we, you know, if the intelligence community hadn't told us X, we wouldn't have gone to war. That's just, that has it all yeah. backwards. Um, okay. Well, we're getting on, I think about the 50 minute mark. Okay. <clears throat> 
So I want to keep it here, uh, be respectful of your time. But I do want to, I want to touch on some current events. I want to touch on the end of your book. So the one, do you notice that sort of thinking through this lens of deceit, uh, we'll talk broadly, more broadly about deceit here in a moment, but uh, particularly on the road to war, I, you know, the rhetoric out of the current administration, particularly with respect to North Korea and Iran in particular, I think is alarming. Um, it's often very provocative. It's uh, uh, sort of being the aggressor, it feels like, in the room. Um, and North Korea is pretty aggressive as well, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's not certainly not fair to say they're not aggressive as well. But in the way in which the current administration, and, and you talk about in the H. Diplo ISSF piece that uh, some pieces about Trump that make it a little harder to analyze and how much of it's deception versus self-deception um, and someone that, <clears throat> you know, clearly has uh, very little regard for truth-telling. And so it's harder to understand, I think, his um, motives. But do you see any worrying trends in terms of a an administration trying to use some of these tools to mislead or deceive the public on the road to a war for any particular reason? I mean, do you right. see hints of this? Well, so <clears throat> I know we'll return to the basic arguments in the, in the other piece about Trump, but when I wrote it, I didn't have a lot of foreign policy crises, thankfully at the time, to work with in terms of evidence. But now we do have a few with Iran and North Korea where you can think through what approach is being taken. Yeah, times have changed since February. So yes, it's quickly yeah. out. Times change every day, as, as, as you know. It's Article's almost dated now. Because um, uh, this, this would have been before the Moab uh, yeah, and before the escalating rhetoric with Korea um, yes. and before some of the conversations on the uh, more recent conversations on the Iran deal. Because as we sit here, it's October 17th. 2017. Right. So some few things have happened since this article has been released. Indeed. And um, I will say on Iran in particular, um, God forbid it leads to a fight, but if it does, it will be one of the more clumsy attempts of blame shifting we've seen because it's so transparent. Um, you know, basically the administration is arguing that Iran is not in compliance with the terms of the agreement, which is designed to kind of limit Iran's ability to get nuclear weapons, when basically um, almost everyone else agrees that it is in compliance. Most importantly, the inspectors doing the inspecting are allies, members of Trump's own administration, the Secretary of Defense. So, um, you know, this is kind of, if the argument is, well, you know, we have to scrap this agreement because the Iranians aren't in compliance. And the alternative to an agreement is an eventual fight once Iran is freed from these constraints and chooses to pursue some capability. This will be one of the worst concealed incidents of blame shifting because you need pretty some, transparent. <laughs> yeah, you need some plausible argument that actually they are the ones right driving the process. And it, now. Some of the folks that are pushing this um, in, in our government and in Congress are Iran hawks who've made no secret of the fact all along that they don't want any agreement with Iran. They think, uh, you know, that for broader geopolitical reasons that we should, you know, adopt a posture of unremitting hostility toward Iran. 
But again, this is just so easy to see, I think, and not just among the engaged public or experts that I just don't see it prospering politically in the same way. Um, North Korea, I think, is more complicated because I do think that um, almost any administration would be alarmed by, you know, kind of stepwise jumps in North Korean capabilities in terms of, uh, you know, uh, developing a, a power, more powerful version of nuclear weapons and the missiles that could carry them to the American homeland. I mean, I have my own personal views on how deterrence might be sufficient to deal with that, but, you know, every administration reacts strongly to proliferation mm-hmm. threats. So I don't, I don't see, there's not a lot of overselling per se going on and just saying this is an unacceptable threat. Um, but again, I do think, again, God forbid, mm-hmm. they're in a fight, especially in this crisis. But um, if, if one did happen, there there will be an attempt to kind of say that it was some specific North Korean provocation that led to it, rather than kind of a longer process of us deciding that simply this capability in and of itself is unacceptable, and we're simply looking for a pretext to kind of take out that capability. Um I think the key difference between these cases and Iraq is no one thinks these fights will be easy, or they shouldn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> or they should have learned the lesson. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah. mean, and these are these are more formidable adversaries than Iraq, and mm. um, there are, there are fewer plausible <clears throat> exit strategies. And in the North Korean case, there are real possibilities that nuclear weapons are used. So um, you have to hope that base that that you know this is this is the basic logic many of us have with nuclear weapons they focus the mind even the most addled mind can understand the costs associated with nuclear weapons so we'll just have to hope that prevails here um so the, at the end of your book you lay out um i think a few questions and i, I want to hit on them kind of quickly uh which is the three of them that you leave the reader with are when does deception blur into self-deception? What strategies do leaders use to co-opt other elites and keep them from blowing the whistle on what's going on? You talked about that a little bit with uh, um, in particular with the Iraq war Um, and to what extent is deception a bottom up phenomenon and to kind of make sure we have some time for current events in your H Diplo article, you Focus on really the the first one and the third one as being important to the current administration. So let's go ahead and shift there, if that's okay sure, with you, sure. um, and talk about the H. Diplo uh, essay um, in which you talk about the relationship between uh, the, a Trump presidency and the relevance of uh, essentially of the analysis used in the book, but also trying to understand why it is that. Um, President Trump has such a problem with the truth, yeah. right? And a lot of this goes beyond clever deceit in the way that you right. talk about how FDR employed it, um, and it, it it's different than how AB, LBJ employed it, and really different than the way in which Bush employed it. Um, Trump seems to um, not just be deceptive, but to do the pants on fire thing yes. all the time, right? He seems to to uh, just lie without regard to the truth. I mean, I think uh, the in your article you note here that um, 
I guess this would have been as of February 3rd, 2017. Trump was given the lie of the year in 2015. And as of February 3rd, and I haven't checked the most recent statistics, but uh, PolitiFact rated almost 70%. So it's 69% of his statements as either mostly false, false, or pants on fire. Um, and just as a reference point, um, Hillary Clinton, who has her own issues with the truth sometimes, I think, um, the percentage of her claims that are rated by this nonpartisan organization, PolitiFact, is that 26% of her claims, which, first of all, still not fantastic, um, but compared to 69%, right. I mean, two more than two-thirds of the things that the current president says, sort of, uh, that PolitiFact has uh, checked out, are just, are false. And so, how does that influence this idea, or how does it... Um, affect your thinking about deceit and road to war with someone that is sort of just part of his trademark as being uh, not being able to tell the truth consistently. And so I think that plays in a little bit to what you're talking about, deception versus self-deception and how much of it is just him not understanding the truth or sort of buying on with some populist ideas that he gets feedback on and then sort of fully endorses them. So it's not clear that it's strategic or if it's just a response to sort of the themes of populism. So anyways, how are you, yeah. how is how is your analysis here and what's going on informed your thinking on this? Sure. And um well one thing <clears throat> I should point out um David Leonard who's the opinions editor at the New York Times along with one of their data journalists, they've compiled a list an ongoing list of every one of Trump's kind of verifiable lies. And so if you go to their webpage, you can find that. Um, we'll make that, uh, along with links to John's book, we'll make uh, a link to PolitiFact and a link to the list that uh, New York Times has brought together available on the blog. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, I think what you're getting at is important. It's basically that there are differences of degree and then there are differences of kind. I truly think... Donald Trump is in some other category from the presidents I've looked at. And part of that is the sheer quantity of lying, how easily um, refutable these lies are, like how crude they are, mm -hmm. um, how constant it is. And so the question is, what's going on here? One possibility, which I think has some merit, has to do with this distinction between deception and self-deception. Um, you know, the presidents I looked at, along with others like Reagan, they were certainly capable of self-deception. They wanted to believe in their hearts. FDR wanted to believe that he had tried to avoid war, and LBJ wanted to believe the same. You know, George W. Bush wanted to believe that it was the right thing to take out Saddam. There's this, however, self-deceptive at some level. So they had to convince themselves of certain things in order to go out and tell a certain story. But with Trump, you know, it reasonably can be asked if he has any grasp of reality on certain issues. Mm -hmm. He just basically his the, the base impulse appears to be if it reflects well on me, I'll believe it. And if it doesn't reflect well on me, I'll simply not acknowledge it. Um, and the other piece of it seems to be just a, a response to uh, being just against anything that happened in the former administration, even if there's not a consistent logic behind it. 
It's just being opposed to things that the Obama administration were doing as well. Yeah, I mean, just if that's it, consistent, right? So just getting—I mean, this is something that all analysts are grappling with. What is there any framework we can come up with that gets at the basic motivations of this individual? Is it pure narcissism? Is it you know rejectionism of the past administration? Um, what is it? Um, so in this case, more than others, I would say you have to reasonably ask. Is he kind of intentionally shading the truth or is he just unaware of it? I think he, look, he's he's savvy enough. There is an element of strategy here just because the certain themes start keep, to emerge, yeah. keep, keep coming up over and over again. But I do think more than most, he's just so incurious about the facts that he probably is more capable of self-deception than most. Um I think the key difference, though, with the cases I looked at has to do with, we'll call this fancy, the marketplace of ideas. Um, in the cases I looked at, I truly think the reason these presidents resorted to deception is because they either wanted to avoid a divisive debate in the, quote, marketplace of ideas, or to kind of have a one-sided one that kind of everyone agreed, oh, the case for war is overwhelming. I think Donald Trump revels in division. He, I don't think he is in any way trying to avoid a divisive debate in the marketplace of ideas. I think the whole strategy is to continually foment that kind of debate in order to make his supporters feel like they are indeed an embattled minority in a country that's increasingly hostile to them and their way of life, and that they have to turn to him as their kind of vehicle for their last remaining vehicle for political representation. So, you know, his goal is not to kind of um, uh, quiet opposition or maximize support. That's the basic logic of the book. Mm -hmm. Leaders resort to deception to maximize support for war. I think Trump's goal is to basically divide. And, and he's doing that because he understands that only in a divided society will kind of he stand out as a necessary figure politically. Well, it's certainly, I mean, there's certainly evidence for that from the campaign trail, I would think, and the way in which he's governed being, I mean, it, it, to me, it feels a little bit like uh, building off of reality television, right? With the whole, I mean, the you're fired was his catch line for a long yeah. time before the birther stuff. And so, um, it, and in, in that sense, in his entertainment life, he he did revel in the in the uh, the attacks, the aggression, and sort of um, uh, trying to uh, not trying to pull people together and get popular support. It was I am in charge. I can tell you what to do and do it aggressively. Um, and uh, it's it certainly doesn't seem like the approach has been to to bring people from different backgrounds and different ideologies together for a common uh, goal. It seems to mostly be exciting a base of a specific type of or specific group of voters. Yeah. And I, you know, you think about, think about quote, fake news. I mean, he is wearing as a badge of honor that the institution we trust to provide us with information about what's happening generally comes out against him. He's saying, you know, this is exactly what I told you. You can't trust the news. Now, this is where the bottom-up component comes in. 
they're just simply a lot of people that are ready to hear this. And for all sorts of reasons we're learning or really scrutinizing, many people do distrust the kind of elite institutions in our society, the mainstream media, the major political parties. And so in a perverse way, he Trump thrives, you know, on 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 the thrives on the rejection he receives from these institutions. It's a badge of honor among many of his supporters that, you know, that this guy is, uh, you know, criticized in the mainstream media for being a liar, that the courts are ruling against him, that mainstream Republicans are, you know, kind of getting impatient with his incompetence. To, to, to many folks, again, it might even just be 30%, but that's still a sizable chunk. This is, this is proof that Trump's the right kind of figure doing the right kinds of things. And that's made me rethink mm-hmm. kind of what the function is of truth-telling and dishonesty. I, I kind of seen it as a shrewd political tactic to kind of paper over political problems rather than a deliberate strategy to kind of divide the population um, in order to kind of carve out space for your own kind of populist insurgency. I know this is not directly in your area, but are there, uh, as you see this happening in the U.S., my understanding is that there are there are corollaries to this going on in other parts of the world right now. Are there any cases that you know enough about to speak on that are, you know, that had the basic institutions of liberal democracy and then through, uh, uh, the reasons aren't exactly clear, I think there are some suspects, but through sort of the new frameworks we have now with the ways in which we gather information, particularly with social media. I mean, that's how we uh, publicize this podcast. It's all been through social media. That's There have been more nefarious approaches in the political sphere. And it seems like this this uneasy relationship with the truth and leaders of liberal democracies um, and and their attempts to spread kind of discord or ident- you know re- result back to kind of a basic identity politics or something of that nature um, seems to be occurring at least in parts of Eastern Europe like we talked about earlier um, there's an argument maybe that it's how uh, Putin's able to maintain such power is through sort of some not uh, maybe it's more strategic in the way that some of these former presidents, were, but spreading at least discord uh, seems to be like it's not just happening in the U.S., but there might be other examples that we can look to of this going on out in the world. Yeah. I mean, this is where I think an historian's perspective would be really helpful just because, you know, this is beyond my expertise, but you do get this sense that in these periods of intense and disruptive kind of social change that span borders, you get you get a a kind of recurring process of social and political fragmentation, you know, increasing divisions over basic issues like, you know, who, who belong, who are we, who belongs in our society, who's getting ahead and who's falling behind. And what, when that happens, right, mainstream institutions come under attack for, or, or get discredited as for being ineffective. Um, the marketplace of ideas kind of fragments as different people gravitate to kind of preferred information providers. And this provides a space for this kind of mischief. And I, you know, we've certainly seen it in the past. Um, 
and, and, and we, we can see it today. I mean, your point's a good one in that this is not just a Trump issue. There, there, there's something broader going on. This is why we see populism ascendant in different forms in different places, which isn't to say that it's always going to manifest in the same, in this exact same way. But, you know, we really need to adopt a broad perspective to understand this. And as an international relations scholar, this is a bit uncomfortable for me just because I'm, I study American foreign policy and, and American wars and thinking broadly in terms of global kind of social change and the political response <clears throat> is not naturally what we do. But I think that's the perspective you need to adopt. Probably. Yeah, I think, I think that's com- completely right. And I think it's where, you know, in our own disciplines, mine being more public administration, yours being international affairs, I, I think uh, it's, it's why I think this podcast is, is fun and useful is this cross-disciplinary talk. Right? I'm learning yeah. things from you today as we sit here and talk. But I think it, um, the idea that this isn't, so I find Trump very frustrating. I've made no secret about that in my own sort of social media space that the, the, the lies and the deception and the taking advantage of the working class and the poor and immigrants is, is infuriating, I think, and very antithetical to traditional American values, yeah. uh, to basic ideas of liberty that we were discussing earlier. But it does seem to be, a bit more of a global trend that we need to understand, particularly as policy experts, because I don't think our current models, I mean, we were sort of, you were joking a little bit as you were discussing that maybe even the framework from the book doesn't apply quite well to what's going on with, uh, or perfectly well to what's going on with explaining Trump, right? And so I, I, I think what that highlights to me is that we have to get creative in how we think about what's going on, um, because our in my opinion, the, our institutions are clearly under attack uh, in ways that they haven't been before. And the way in which the real scary part to me is the way in which we consume information has shifted, but the way of parsing quality from just quantity hasn't really adapted to those spaces yet. There yeah. aren't, you know, there's so much deceit or misinformation that's being spread on purpose by political actors in a way that, um, skips the filtering mechanisms of our independent media and then goes straight to uh, people who may not have the tools to associate what's true and what's just sponsored from a nefarious actor. Yeah, well, think about the paradox here that we've never needed, you know, our mainstream filters more. Hmm. And and in so many ways, the mainstream media has responded quite well to the, the Trump phenomenon, you know, much more uh, aggressive in its and it's reporting than it was, for example, in the Bush period on some things. But it's a but and yet, if you think about it, more people than ever are just willing to uh, uh, reject what comes out of that filter because, well, that's just the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And we all know the mainstream media is fake news. So from a deceit yeah. tactic, I think it's been I mean, and the Bush administration did a little bit of this, as I recall, attacking the uh, uh, mainstream media. But uh, it's interesting because a sort of Trump administration has been able to more carefully have their audience delegitimize whole swaths of information. Yeah, that's the key thing. Um, you know, as you can't trust anything. Yeah, you can't trust anything that's coming out of you know the media. You can't trust anything that's coming out of universities. And with just kind of a wave of the hand, lumps all these into one category, 
and uh, does away with the trust at all of those sources of information. And so then people do end up in a situation where Trump supporters, I think, may have a hard time distinguishing between what are good sources of information and what's not, because the president is completely uh, disregarding nuances across media and nuances across education and what's good information and what's not, which makes it, as educators, as we sit here trying to spread this information to the general public, really challenging because those whole sources of information are being classified as deceit or misinformation, right? right? And so it is a, it's a challenging, not only for how the, the institutions should respond, but also as, as educators, right? I mean, just information and quality education is sort of being lumped under this broad category of groups that can't be trusted, uh, which is really frightening. No, you're right. And we have a particular challenge here at a policy school, um, where our students, many of them are here because they want to be in public service. And I think along with that is a notion that one is not partisan, you know, especially if you plan to work for the government, you want to be, you know, whether you're in the intelligence community or the nonprofit or what you want to kind of transcend partisanship and serve your country, which is noble. But you can being nonpartisan doesn't mean you can be apolitical. Mm-hmm. And I worry sometimes that, um, that you know, we as faculty, I don't think we should be openly partisan, but I think we need to be political when there are political crises, right, that, that we have to confront, because this is the world our students are entering. Yeah, and at a minimum, I mean, I struggle with this, as, as you know, as well. It's, um, I think the conversation, I think we are allowed to have, or we should have values, right? And values that are rooted in traditional American values of life, the value of life, the value of liberty, the value of pursuing and having the opportunity to pursue happiness. And so it does become a challenge when, uh, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness mixed with, you know, the, the mission we have here as educators is to educate, is to give people evidence and and do it in a fashion where people from all backgrounds can come and learn. And, you know, when the president is attacking those things, credibility of education and credibility of institutions that um, want to be a space where people can come and learn, and it goes all the way down to the state level, these criticisms, right? It's a, it's weird to, it makes it challenging to talk about it in, in the policy schools, as you say, because it, it feels like just to talk about it, feels partisan yes, exactly. uh, because the, re- the refute of 69% of the lies coming from the president is made to be partisan. Well, no, that's not partisan. That's 69% of the time these claims are lies. And as educators, we have to push back against those things. But it does make it challenging when we have students who we want to, we don't want to teach them to be partisan. We want to teach them to value education and value serving others, whoever is in need. But it does seem in some ways those things have become in conflict with um, um, with not being partisan sometimes. And yeah. Or at least advocating against the policies clearly of who's leading one of the parties, <laughs> one of the major parties. It's challenging. Well, and, you know, for, for any public servant, um, there are going to be tense moments where you have to execute a policy, you know, you don't uh, completely agree with. But... Uh, but you're right that it's especially important to know where your red lines are then. What, what, when are your fundamental values being compromised where simply you can't in good conscience do your job? And 
I think if there's a silver lining to a lot of what's going on recently, it's made all of us more self-aware about what we value at the end of the day. And, you know, institutions can seem like such a blasé topic because they're in the background most of the time. But this is a good reminder that these are vital living things that have to be preserved. Um, So, you know, there's there's a possibility that we will come out of this better for it, if if you could put it that way. in terms of maybe more appreciative of of the basic features of our system, um, and you do not have, all of us, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and um, you do see, I think, at a minimum, a lot of civic engagement across the across the aisle, right? As people, uh, as things are made sort of more uh, pressing, I suppose, or more at the forefront of our minds, it does seem to have encouraged the Trump presidency more civic engagement across the population. And so hopefully something like that can can stick, I think, because uh, I think the more citizens engaged and trying to gather information and learn, the better, the more, the stronger chance to the point of your book that, that liberal democracies have at not being deceived in ways that aren't good for the society. Yeah. And, and you know, you could argue that in a macro sense, these populist moments do reveal social problems that had been papered over. So not to say that everything in our society is about, you know, uh, you know, the white uh, working class being left behind or something, but that that probably is a real, that is a real problem that our economy, you know, is changed. It privileges some and leaves others behind. We have simply not probably gotten our hands around this. And the parties kind of need a jolt sometimes. The party system needs a jolt to be more responsive. And so with all the ugliness, if you strip that away, um, again, if something good can come out of this, maybe it's an awareness that Trump didn't come out of the ether. Mm-hmm. He There's was, real harm he was and hurt. He yeah. by from the bottom up in a certain, by a certain political moment. And I feel like perhaps we'll finally understand what the demands of that moment are and, and have a better way to address it than than the current uh, administration. I agree. And I hope it does at least draw attention from particularly elites to the the suffering and the harm in these communities, right? I mean, it's often completely disregarded. And so hopefully it does to a variety of suffering. Hopefully it it draws attention well, to it. So the, the, the major unfortunate thing, though, is pitting the suffering of one community against that of another, like it's a contest and who's, you know, really deserving of... This is this is the division part that I think is so unhealthy. Yeah, and, and, and also the part that the president excels at, right? I yes, mean, well, Very exactly. much excels this at... Just, <laughs> this is why I just can't... That's pretty discord. just can't get behind that approach. It's, yeah, well, it seems very... Uh, counterproductive and it seems um it seems like it's by design to pit groups against one another oh, and impede progress towards helping these people i mean that's the that's the big my big stick with trump is claiming to be a, a voice of this this class of people or this group of people who've been very harmed by the economy arguably over the last 30 years which is the white working class and particularly white working class men right and and all of these policies are completely not to help those people that you see. I mean, you're yeah. talking about deceit, saying that you're going to help these groups and then putting in policies that harm those groups. It's just it's just hard to swallow sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that gets to the the old you know distinction between the kind of the big lie and the small lie, and yep. you know. But um, 
anyway, I, I do think one thing that's happened in, in re, you know, since the beginning of this administration is it's made me, I hate to say it, more pessimistic about the basic functioning of our system because I could kind of understand the presidents I was looking at in the book in terms of a normal democratic political logic. And this appears to be something different, like there's a crisis in the system that produced this. Um, and hence, that's why I was very reluctant to apply the framework in the book too directly. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think you're right in that it feels like the system itself is experiencing um, some breakdowns. And I think it's going to ask and hopefully we get to ask them on this podcast and in this space questions and conversations like we're having today, which is what does that mean? I mean, the, the order does seem to be. You know, the post-World War II order way of doing things and distributing resources and power dynamics seems to be adjusting. Yes. And um, that can be, there are, there's probably some potential for good there, but there's also a lot of potential for a lot of harm. And so hopefully we're able to work through this and avoid as much of the harm as possible. All right, we've reached the hour and 20 mark. We're stopping. Um, the thing that I like to let guests do is if you have any a, a web page or social media or anything where people can follow along your work, if you'd like to share other than people having uh, being able to buy the book, don't let today's conversation substitute reading the book. Uh, it's Deceit on the Road to War, President's Politics and American Democracy by John Chuchler, our guest today. And John, do you have any uh, uh, contact information you'd like to share with the listeners? I'm a little behind on these things, so just Google me if you'd like, and I'll, I'll you know, my, my writing will appear there. And you can find your email address on the Bush School website yes, where we, yeah, uh, where we both currently work. That's right. Awesome. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. This has been uh, sort of the first interview where uh, it's sort of shifting more to a conversation. So this has been a lot of fun for me to kind of chat with you about these things, and hopefully we can find an excuse to do it in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Problems. These episodes can be found on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Pocket Casts, along with on our YouTube channel at Public Problems. You can find these episodes on any of these mediums by simply searching for Public Problems. We also are maintaining a Facebook page. It's at Public Problems Podcast. Here we are sharing more information about the podcasts and having a little bit of a discussion on current topics. We'll also be hosting an event in January called Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. This will be a public classroom learning experience that you can participate in. Simply find the event on our Facebook page and click that you're interested in participating. More information on that will be forthcoming in the next couple of months. Thanks again for your time and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. Have a nice day.